This is A's Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. Drive to deep center field, going back Hernandez at the track, right to the wall, gone! Elvis Andrews! And 29 other MLB clubs. High drive, deep left field, Nino left the building. Guerrero lifts one to left field, and gone! Otani, that was a moonshot out there in the right center. Alonzo defends his title, the 2021 Derby champion. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe from OPS Plus to juiced balls to game-changing moments. We have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. Well, here on A's Cast, we talk all the time about road games and what it's like to play at home versus what it's like to play on the road, how the road is a much different place, and the athletics are on the road to end the first half. I like to call it the first half, even though we're past 81 games. We're really in the second half anyway, but... It, it, the second half really means something with the all-star break because it gives everybody time, right? It gives you time to relax, decompress, unplug, whatever you want to call it, and then really reflect. And Because you don't have a lot of time to reflect in this game. I mean, you get one day off every couple weeks, and you just don't have that kind of time. Actually taking three, four, five days and being away from it, allows you to kind of think, regroup, and have really a second half. So a lot of times we talk about, you know, what it's like to be on the road. But we're not on the road with the team. And what am I getting at? Well, today officially we are on the road, A's Cast Live. We are a total road game. We are not in our normal habitat. We are in a whole different ball game. If you're listening on A's Cast, thank you. If you're watching on Twitter or on YouTube, you can see the background behind me is not normal. I am in the studios of NBC California. This is the Oakland A's backdrop that you see during the COVID times when guys were doing the broadcast when Glenn Kuyper and Ray Fossey and Dallas Braden were doing the COVID broadcast. They were doing it from this room. This is the room that everybody would do their games in during COVID. So it was the same thing. Uh, they actually have the Kruk and Kipe chairs. And I'm like, yeah, I can't sit in those. That's a bad look. But I almost thought, you know what? I should just sit in the Kruk and Kipe chairs, sit in their chairs while we do A's cast live. Just let them know my A's butt was in their chairs when they're, because they're going to be doing games, I guess, here right after the All-Star break. But uh, Greg Papa our buddy Pop, his KMBR stuff's here and where they do the uh, KMBR rap, all their stuff. So this is the multimedia room for, for NBC Sports, Bay Area, and California. We've got it set up because later on today, I will be hosting A's pre- and post-game live with my all-time favorite, Bip Roberts. Maybe we should have the Bipster in here. Maybe a little scary commander being a road game where – we're technically um, thrilled we're, we've made this happen and that I brought all the gear and I set up all the gear and somehow it worked. It's not all working. Normally, uh, the picture would be a little bit better because we have better cameras. We're having to go through the camera of my iPad, but it's not that bad. 
we're still trying to figure out there's a lights tv lights above me that they kind of they're like set by motion they go off and then they don't go off so uh truly a road game for us here at nbc sports california as we get you ready for the athletics and the texas rangers i'm wearing a shirt by the way cody i forgot i bought this one as you remember we were there at ho-ho cam and i was uh as I normally do, I get excited when I'm in, on the road and I just start buying stuff. I forgot I bought this spring training shirt. Yeah, I was there with you when you got it. And uh, by the way, I love the backdrop at NBC Sports California. As people don't, if they don't Wait, know, if, if I go a little higher, can can you see the sunset, the fake sunset they got rolling? Yeah, I, I can see it. So I'm sure everyone else can see it. Um, it's a legit backdrop. I mean, where it is where my backdrop is the back wall of my office. You can see the Ray Fossey patch right there so that's why we're in different spots um obviously i'm not doing pre and post game on uh television like you are so i'm at home in san jose but i'm glad we're able to do it like this and um if you can see the shirt i have on it says just make it happen just make it happen. that's from the guy our friends at last dive bar who made the shirt for you within a, what, what a week and i have the banner running now you can get you know just make it happen shirt at last i mean they have a whole line of for everyone but now they have you know hopefully we see more chris townsend gear uh you're becoming a pretty big deal so um i'm glad we're able to Wait, do it like I, this. i'm becoming a pretty big deal I'm, well you have a t-shirt now i mean that's that's when oh, you know yeah, you made I, it I, yeah <laughs> yeah it's like my my friends go do you ever miss doing sports talk radio um i have a buddy who is back on my buddy larry Kruger is back on 95 7 the game so i went over there and turned it on, and I got to hear a lot of Jimmy G, uh, Trey Lance, and San Francisco Giants baseball, and I went, boop, back to Sirius XM. I, I saw a great gra- guy, Spilly, Ryan Spielborgs today, all over your very good friend. And I, I don't know, I mean, there's less than half a season left, as we have just, if you do the math, I don't know, everybody is what, about around 75 games left? I think we're a little bit less than that. Yeah, everyone's played at least 80, well over around 85 games. So, yeah, that's about right. Because we haven't had the rainouts. We haven't had the issues that the Central and the Midwest, the Midwest and the East Coast teams have had. So, it's like every single time I haven't done my scorebook yet today, but I always write in where, you know, the amount of games we've played, our record, how many games, and I do it for both teams. And we're always have played. I think every single series we have had this year, if you get past the first week of the year, we basically played more games because we played all those games right out of the gate. So we've always had more games than our opponent. We've always had that. And I think they'll ride this to the end, but what a disaster. The Hall of Famer, friend of the program, Tony La Russa's turned out in Chicago. I I, I didn't think that would happen. Um, sad. But unless something dramatically changes, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, he walked he walked Jose Ramirez yesterday with a one zero count. Was that what he did yesterday? No, no, no. It was today because they played a they played a oh, it was today. Yeah, so he walked Jose Ramirez on an o one count. Double dip today, huh? Once again, because yeah. of weather. Yeah, so he he walked Jose Ramirez on an o one count after he fouled off a pitch. He walked him. And then uh, the Franimal, Franimal Reyes came up, and he struck out. So it actually worked out in Tony's favor this time, unlike last time where Muncy hit a home run. Uh, another thing happened that game real quick, not to go away from Tony, but Shane Bieber threw the first complete game for the Guardians since 
2020 when I think he was the one that did it last. So a complete game today for Shane Bieber. But, yeah, Tony took the headlines with the another intentional walk <laughs> of a guy when, when he was down in the count. Well, how you feeling? So that if you said he threw a complete game, that means the ball game's over. Yeah, it ended like an hour ago. All right, four to one. So the White Sox now, the White Sox have lost eleven of thirteen against the Guardians and Twins. So they've lost. White Sox have lost. It'll be eleven of thirteen combined games versus the Guardians and the Twins this year. Your two rivals. You've lost thirteen. You've lost eleven of thirteen, and you're now forty-one and forty-five. They've had injuries, but you know what? Everybody's had injuries. My Philadelphia Phillies. I don't know how they became my Philadelphia Phillies all of a sudden, but now my Philadelphia Phillies, <laughs> uh, without Bryce Harper, are making a run. Your Baltimore Orioles making a run. Oh, I mean, they got teams that are making a run without. Well, you know, somehow the. You know, Bob Melvin, our buddy Bo Mel, Fernando Tat. How many at bats does Fernando Tatis have this year? Oh, uh, that'd be at zero. They're still in the hunt. I mean, Tony, what's up? Tony Larusa is forty-one and forty-five. Twenty-two. In a Twenty-two and twenty-eight versus teams five hundred or better too. It's in a good. division that was that hey, that we didn't think this division was going to be very good. He was supposed to be the White Sox were po- were supposed to be the dominant team in the Central. We, you, you know, once the lockout ended and we got our groove back and we started getting everybody on and we started breaking down the divisions, everybody was like, well, in the East, you know, Yankees, Red Sox, Blue Jays, you always have the Rays. You got to look out for the Rays. Okay, you got that. Uh, in the West, it was like, well, you know, look out for the Angels. This could be the Angels years. Oh, the Mariners are playing good baseball, by the way. They've they've been great lately, but it was it was Mariners. Oh, you know, still the Astros are good. But the Central was like, oh, it's the White Sox. Oh, White Sox are blowing everybody away. White White Sox are going to the postseason. Uh, everybody else is going to be fighting there for their division. The one team in the American League. I mean, it was like a foregone conclusion that the Chicago White Sox were the dominant team that you were going to have to reckon with in the playoffs because they were winning the Central. How is that working out now for our guy, Tony La Russa, A's Hall of Famer, Baseball Hall of Famer? It just – it has not been good. And and I, I wanted to believe that all those people that said, ah, oh, he's too old, ah, oh, he's, he's this, he's that, and he kind of proved them all wrong. But this year, things have just not seemed right. I'm not there every day. I'm not in the clubhouse. I'm not talking to Tony. I don't have the connection like I've had to to do I have to Marcotte or the connection that I had to Bob Melvin. You know, you don't have that with other teams' managers. It's just safe to say to look at the numbers, to look at the record, to look at everything going on in Chicago. And when your manager's seventy eight. That sounds right. I think he's I'll pull up his age for you real quick. This is not a building process. This is not a learning process. Tony LaRusso was brought here because he wants to win. Jerry Reinstorf, the owner, is 80-something. He wants to win now. They reconnected, and it was the worst mistake I ever made was firing Tony LaRusso and bringing him back, and it's about winning now. And you're, you're, you're 41 and 45? I mean, you lose the double dip today? I mean, what are we talking about? You're going into the, to the all-star break. 
man, your battleship is almost sunk. I mean, this is, I mean, what you got a legend here as a manager. What do you do? They're, they're, you're, you mentioned their struggles against um, the White Sox, the Guardians and the Twins, which is not surprising because I said they're 22 and 20 versus teams above 500. The only team that they played well, shocker, is Detroit. They're 7 and 3 versus Detroit this year. But they're 1 and 3 versus Baltimore. Oh, they played well against Boston. Uh, they're 3 and 4 versus the Yankees. They're 1 and 5 versus the Twins. They're now 1 and 6 versus the Guardians. Like, that's just. Not going to get it done, and you're right. Tony's 77. He'll be 78 in October. He was brought into one World Series. They were they were really good last year, and they have had injuries. Eloy Jimenez is hurt. Luis Robert, you know him as Robert. Uh, uh, he was hurt. That, that is not on me. <laughs> that uh, joke will never ever be on me. Uh, Lance Lynn was hurt, but he's back now. You know they've had struggles with their pitching staff. The best guy on their rotation pitches the second game of the doubleheader. Dylan Cease. So he should have been an All Star. He's not, which is no. a joke. Um, he's a top what they top four pitcher, yeah. but he the other in, top three are going to the All Star yeah. game. He is not. By the way, that's always the most tired discussion. You know, first world problems. He should have been an All Star. He well, didn't. I the other guy I'm looking at last night. I was sitting there on my couch, got done with the pregame show, sat down, got my scorebook going, and I start looking at uh, just looking at numbers going. How's Jonah Heim have almost? I think he had a 756 OPS, folks. If you have a 800 OPS, I'm not going to say you're elite. I'm saying you're playing at a really high level offensively. If you like to look at things other than traditional OPS, it says you're, you're slugging it, you're getting on base, you're a catcher, you're 27 years old. Your OPS, I mean, for, for 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 our little world where the people have stuck their neck out, basically saying Shohei Otani is the MVP because just look at the numbers. Okay, if I'm going to play in your world, and that's the work because I don't believe that's how it should work. I should be there. There should be context, and we should look at it and really delve into it. But if and we've had. People in our little world around the A's look at Otani and say, ah, it's the numbers. Okay. If I just look at the numbers, I look at Jonah Heim has 100 points higher OPS than Sean Murphy. He's batting nearly 60, point higher, 60 points higher. He's got more home runs. This ballpark in Texas is no longer a bandbox. It's a, it plays very fair. If not in the very beginning, I don't know what it is now. But in the very beginning, it played as a pitcher's ballpark. I mean, you want to talk about a guy who got snubbed from the All-Star game, I'll just say Jonah Heim, and I'm looking at the A's going, you traded a guy that has, I mean, he's 27, didn't have a great year last year, but is he coming into his own? Did you trade away a guy that, I mean, Jonah Heim does this for the next few years, you're going to be like, man, we had that guy. You can add him to the list of players that people say that about, like Mac, like Max Muncy and others. But I did a little breakdown on Heim. Versus- yeah, I will never say that about Max Muncy. And anybody who says that about Max Muncy, once again, you're not looking at it and you're not doing it justice. Max Muncy was awful with the A's. He couldn't hit. There's no idea. No one had any. Anybody could have had Max Muncy. Max Muncy had a moment. What's Max Muncy doing right now? Uh, not much. He's struggling. 
Max Muncie had a this brief period of time that he let me go to his numbers. Not Max Muncie in the minors. Max Muncie 1.0, not 2.0 in Stockton. He's still in Stockton, right? Correct, still in Stockton. He's not in Lansing. No, he will be eventually, though. You know what? I've clicked on Max Muncie so much in minor leagues, his stuff comes up, and not regular Max Muncie. Uh, Isn't that funny? Well, you're really he's really tracking to see what the old Baylor the Baylor Bear did in the minor leagues, apparently. So Max Muncie has this brief period of time. Okay, with the A's, he hit a whopping in 112 plate appearances, hit three home runs. Then in 113 plate appearances, he hits two home runs. So this guy hits a grand total of five home runs in two years and 96 games and hit 206 and 186, clearly was outmatched. If you watched him play like we all did, he was completely outmatched. He was he sucked. Max Muncy sucked. Let's be honest. He was not good. And uh, where did he play in 2017? Um, going to say nowhere, probably. Independ- it wasn't the only thing he was playing independent ball. He wasn't in the big leagues. He did something with the swing coach and did all that. When it, put it this way, whenever stuff like that happens, whenever you see something that is an outlier, I'm not accusing anybody of anything, but when you go from can't hit and you're not even have a job to come out of nowhere and hit 35, 35, and then 36 in your next three full seasons. Wow. But this year, at 31 years old, back to being Max Muncy, hitting 162 with a 622 OPS. And the only reason why he's surviving is he's in the Dodger lineup. And they're still going to run him out there. But what Max Muncy, I mean, I can't believe you even brought that up, Cody. And it, and anybody, have you actually seen that out there? When you talk about pl- players that the A's let go, you hear Max Muncy's name mentioned. He's one of the guys. You know, they always go back to Donaldson and Sonny. Now, now that that that's a legitimate argument. That that should be argued. Billy Bean has admitted that was a mistake on this program. Correct. It was last year. Max Muncy, don't go down that road. That's ridiculous. The Max Muncy was a guy nobody wanted. Max Muncy didn't even have a job, and then somehow, some way, is now hitting 35 home runs a year. Yeah, it's the same thing. I, is that I, suspicious? Just give me that. Is that no, suspicious? I agree with you because I said I remember when Jose Batista left the Pirates and went to the Blue Jays. He went from hitting 16 home runs one year to hitting 54 with the Blue Jays like two years later. All because but he fixed his swing. We have we have testing. Everybody gets tested. We got to believe that Major League Baseball's testing is one of the most stringent in uh, all of professional sports. I'm just going to say you're seeing something that has how many years of baseball are we looking at now? Hundred and how many? Fifty something? Yeah, it's over 150. Right. This is the 150th Open Championship. We over here call it the the British Open, which is going on at St. Andrews. But you're talking about 100 plus years of baseball. Not too many guys can't hit 
not in the game, come back, now can hit bombs like it's going out of style. That is beyond rare. So do not – you want to bring Sonny Gray into a conversation? You want to bring Josh Donaldson into a conversation? I, I, I'll, I, I welcome that. Don't bring up Max Muncy. Okay, fair enough. But back to the Heim versus Murph the debate, because you texted me last night and it made me get to thinking, like, what's his look down? You can break down their offensive numbers easily. Heim has a better war, a better batting average, more home runs. He does have less RBI, higher OPS by almost 100 points, and his OPS plus is 22 points higher. He's only had 214 at-bats where Murph's had 283. Uh, Jonah Heim's a plus defensive war and for catching. Murph's actually minus. 0. But he's 3. a gold glover. Yeah. Um, now, if you break, if you even go even further down and look at their baseball savant stat cast ratings, uh, Jonah Heim gets a 52.4% strike call rate, which is second in baseball. Murph is fourth at 49.5. So they're similar there. They're both all they're both in the top five in catch framing as well. But Murph's numbers in exit velo, hard hit rate, and barrel rate are all down from last year. Every they're all like no, I'm not saying like it's a huge dip, but they're all down from what he was doing last year. So, and Jonah Himes having well, any younger. I, I, I hear all the time, look at that hard hit rate. Look how hard hit the – and listen, we, we, we were, as I'm wearing the spring training shirt, how many did I buy? Well, you bought – I can't remember if you bought one or two for yourself, and then you bought one for the well, twins, and you bought one for oh, your wife. Right, yeah. <laughs> no, it's because I have the other one that's the, the uh, state of Arizona – and then it says Mesa, Ho Ho, or Mesa, Oakland A. So I have the one that's the map of the state for spring training, and then I got this one. All right, so I got two. So, but down in spring training, the whole thing about Murph was shorten his swing, doesn't want to strike out as much. He realized that that was a problem, and he raked in spring training. Everybody said, "Oh, this is the year." This is the year. Then all of a sudden you start hearing that, well, they're pitching around him. And you're like, come on. Are you serious? And I just just, just watched the game yesterday. Just had to pop on. I go, wow. Once again, if everybody's going to throw just – it's all about just numbers and look at Otani and his numbers, you know, because we've been talking about that with the MVP race. Okay, well, let's – I'll stay in your world in that conversation, and I'll go, you gave away a guy that has 100 points higher OPS. 100 points. Not 20 – not 50, not 75, 100 points higher. That's a lot. That's a lot of slug, and that's a lot of getting on base more. For sure. And people forget what that trade was. He was in the deal. It was him, Chris Davis, and Dane Acker, who the A's took in the, in the 2020 draft, were traded to Texas for Elvis and Aramis Garcia, who was not even with the A's anymore. He was with Cincinnati. So the, there were two catchers exchanged, but – you know, Garcia's not here, and we the A's have Murphy and uh, Stephen Vogt right now with Shea Langoliers in the minor leagues, which if you want to go one step further, I haven't looked in the last couple of days, but since like May 8th, unless he's hit one since then, he's only hit like I think three home runs Langoliers has in AAA. He got off to a hot start with 11 home runs through the first month and a half, and then against, I think it was May 8th through when I looked the other day, he only had three home runs since. But another thing too, Murph has 70 strikeouts this year already. Now, it, through 283 bats, he's not – Joey Gallo, because he has a higher batting average and he's getting on base, but that's still a little alarming uh, with the 70 strikeouts. Because I remember the talk in spring training about how he, he cut down the swing and he was getting, you know, he he was awesome in spring training. He, he, the ball was, 
you could hear the ball pop all over the yard as we steal for Moneyball. Oh, but it was, yeah. I mean, he looked great he in spring training. hair on his ass. Yeah. But he looked great in spring training. And then it just, I mean, he's hitting 230, which for a catcher, that's actually, we know we're not, we know how demanding the spot is. Like the all-stars in the American League, uh, Jose Trevino is one of the all-stars. He's up there in defensive metrics, but as a hitter, he's not, I mean, he's okay. I'd rather see Jonah Heim in the all-star game if we're, you know, if we really want to talk about who should be in the all-star game. I think Heim deserved it more than Trevino, but he's on the best team with the best record in the American League. Oh, and it's the Yankees. So, of course, he's going to be in. All right, coming up here, Jonathan Mayo from MLB.com. We're going to talk about the draft. We'll have Scott Emerson here at 3 o'clock, pitching coach for your Oakland Athletics, and Kylie McDaniel from ESPN. We'll get into a little draft, and we'll get into baseball talk with him coming up here at 3.30. It just – talking baseball draft is very – it's just odd because we're so used to how good the drafts are and the coverage of the drafts in the other sports. That baseball is just so far behind that it's it's like like for instance, Cody sent me this thing today. It's from ESPN.com. And you gotta be an insider. It's one of the insider stories. I'm an insider, so uh, I pay for it. So that's why I'm an insider. Um and I really paid for it. To, it was back in the day to get all the football stuff because ESPN does have great football stuff. But it has for the Oakland A's. We're picking 19th overall. Where does our farm system rank according to these rankings? It says 20th. Yeah, this is Kylie's piece, by the way. So that's Kylie McDaniels. He put that together. Are you sure it's Kylie? I thought it was from when I looked at it earlier. I'm pretty sure it was Kylie's piece. Let me just click on the link. Yeah, it is Kylie. Yeah. So I don't know where he got this ranking because we're 20th. And it says biggest system needs. Um, Left-handed pitching? Left-handed pitching. Let, let, let me go back over to our playbook. The A's have scored one run or less 32 <laughs> times this season. 21 games had one run or fewer in 2021. So already this season, 32 times we've scored one run or less. We've been shut out nine times. We're 6-16 six and 16 in one-run games. We're 29th. How many teams are there in baseball? 30. We're 29th in runs, 29th in home runs, 30th in average, 30th in on-base, 30th in slug, 30th in on-base. So, uh... Our biggest need right now is left-handed pitching. In a game where people are scoring runs, we need more left-handed pitchers. That that's that that's what's going to fix us. Howard Terminal, <laughs> get ready. We're coming with left-handed pitching. We'll talk about that. Jonathan Mayo is going to join us next right here on A's Cast Live. The Coliseum has gone by many names, but none better than the Last Dive Bar. Hi, everyone. Ken Korak here, and my friends at Last Dive Bar are helping us celebrate our longtime home. Last Dive Bar has the most unique merchandise for all Oakland baseball fans. T-shirts, sweatshirts, the Ray Fossey line, and my personal favorite, the lights have taken full effect. Visit their website at lastdivebar.com or follow them on social media at Last Dive Bar. All proceeds are invested back into the A's Community Fund and their affiliated charities. Go to lastdivebar.com. That's Last Dive Bar. A's Cast Live continues from the town. Here's Chris Townsend. 
Tomorrow, programming note, the great David Feldman, D. Feldy on Twitter. I can see him right now. See, this is the kind of greatness you get when you're at NBC Sports California. No, Steph Curry's not walking through that door, but what the hell am I going to talk to him about? The golf tournament? No, I don't want to see Steph. I don't want to see any Niners. God knows I don't want to see any Giants. I want some Feldman. I'm looking at him right now. He is going to be here tomorrow in studio. I brought that headset for you. That's for nobody else but you, my friend. What is our top 10 tomorrow? Top 10 first halves. And I've got some questions for you. Nobody better. Works for NBC. Works for the Pac-12. He's an official scorer. What 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 else do you do? Sometimes he he says sometimes he serves lunch here at NBC California. So uh, we will see you tomorrow, my friend. The great D Feldy right here on A's Cast Live. We love the top ten list. Top ten first halves of all time. Does that then have a top ten collapses? I think we did that one already. So I, I text him about doing the first half. And I'm like, then I, I think we did the, cl- I thought we did the collapses already. Well, I mean, <laughs> Reggie Jackson wasn't going to hit like 80 home runs. And then it kind of, <laughs> what year was that? Uh, let me see. Let me pull up Reggie. Ja- uh, Jonathan Mayo said he'll be here in a few minutes. By the way, uh, does, does the lighting look better? It looks a little brighter. Yeah. Um, I turned the ones behind me fully up, but there are lights above me. I don't know why, like right there to see where it got. And yeah, it it, they're like motion activated. They're motion. They're mo- I have no idea what I'm doing to make the lights behind me get brighter. But uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, Jonathan. So, like I started the show, Cody. It's a road game. True. All right, I'm gonna add Jonathan. He's here. All right, I might, I might, um, I might have to eat some crow here a little bit later about Corey Seager because uh, Corey Seager is about to do something that only two other shortstops in the history of baseball I've ever done if he goes deep tonight. So I might have to eat some crow about his contract and the Texas Rangers. But, Jonathan, it's great to have you on A's Cast Live again. How are you? I'm doing okay. How are you? We're doing great. And this is your time of the year, the draft. Whenever we talk to the draft experts, it doesn't matter. In all my years doing talk radio, whether it's football or basketball, this is the time. It's your Super Bowl. you got to be fired up. Sure. We'll go with fired up. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, it being over all-star weekend, it's, uh, it's a lot because you got the futures game too. We don't want to forget yeah. those guys and, uh, and the draft. Uh, but yeah, it's an exciting time of year. Uh, just a lot to do, a lot of names to, to juggle. Um, but I wouldn't want it any other way. Yeah. We were talking about it yesterday. You guys, MLB.com had a great article and obviously Frankie Montas, uh, his health is a big question here for the trading deadline. But the next three weeks, we've got the Futures game. We've got Home Run Derby, and we've got some firepower in Home Run Derby. we got the All-Star game at historic Dodger Stadium. Next thing you know, it's the draft, and then we have the trading deadline. I mean, the next three weeks going to be pretty hectic in our game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's exciting. I think it's a fun time. We'll get to see which teams are you know trying to go for it now and then what they try to do to – you know, replenish or rebuild their farm system via the draft, or if they are end up being sellers at the trade deadline, bringing in prospects that way. 
Do you like what baseball has done really highlighting the draft? I know people on our end go, eh, I liked it in June because we'd have our guys already playing by now. But do you like how they've pushed it back and it's now with the All-Star game? I think there are a lot of positives to have it with the All-Star game. You know, I like this year, last year, the Futures game and the draft were at the same time. And as someone who broadcast both, that was a lot. But, uh, you know, so I like that the Futures game is Saturday and the draft starts Sunday. So the draft will sort of stand alone on on Sunday when there are no games on. I think because I've been doing this so long and I talk to scouts all the time, uh, we're all our brains are all wired in a certain way for that June draft. So this last yeah. month, has been, even though this is the second year of doing it, has been strange. That said, I think it adds interest. They're trying to continue to grow the draft. It makes it a more exciting event. Having been in the theater where they had it in, in Denver last year, it was exciting to have a venue like that with a lot of fans and a lot of energy and a good amount of players showing up. So I, I think that even if it's a little bit strange and maybe it would be nicer to get some of those draftees out playing a little bit more, uh, I think overall it's a net game. We saw this a few years ago where we started seeing football players where they said, we're going to sit out the bowl game don't want to get hurt for the draft. Uh, we dealt with it here in the Bay Area with Christian McCaffrey at Stanford. He was uh, one of the Heisman Trophy finalists, and, and everybody was like, "Whoa, is this really good?" And it hasn't. It's taken off a little bit. You know, we've even seen guys with Alabama not play. We're now seeing that enter the baseball draft a little bit. Are you concerned? I know David Force, our general manager. I've asked him; he doesn't like it. Uh, are you concerned we're going to see more and more of this going forward? <laughs> I don't, I don't think, I don't think it's going to be, I don't think it's going to become as, as major of a problem as it seems to have become in football. Um, you know, and maybe you'll see the occasional pitcher just because the injury risk shut it down. And that's what, that's kind of basically what happened. There's one high school arm who kind of shut things down earlier than expected. Um, and that's surprising. And listen, it, that may hurt his draft stock when all is said and done, because you I think a lot of teams would rather see him pitch for his team in the playoffs and things like that, but he's very, very talented. I hope it doesn't become a trend. I don't think it will because there's still so much unknown about these players. I think some of these college football players, and I'm, I'll be the first to admit, I'm not a huge college football guy, but the, there, there's so much more data and so much more track record of what they're able to do that them sitting at a game isn't necessarily indicative of anything. And they're also going to be asked and counted on to produce right out of the gate in that first year after being drafted when baseball, uh, you know, there's going to be a few years before you see even an advanced college guy make it to the big leagues, but we haven't seen any college players, you know, shut things down ahead of the draft like that. So the big question about USC and UCLA going to the big 10 is not going to be one for you. No, no. You know, we've talked a little bit about it in terms of the baseball world, but uh, in terms of football, it matters not to me. We've got some uh, big leaguers kids, it looks like, at the top yeah. of this draft this year. And I mean, if your dad's Andrew Jones, I, I like your DNA. It's uh, it's a great nature and nurture kind of combination deal with a lot of these guys. And th this is officially the I feel really old draft. Yeah. Uh, you know, Justin Crawford was Carl Crawford's kid. I covered Carl Crawford in the Futures game, so when he was a prospect. So it just means I've been doing this to him. But, yeah, Drew Jones is amazingly talented. Uh, he is what you would expect in center field. You know, he gets comparisons to his dad, who only went out and won, what, 10 gold gloves. 
Uh, he's got a chance to hit. There's going to be power there. He does everything real easy. He could play shortstop. He played some shortstop for travel ball. He, you would never want him to do that because he's so good in the outfield, but that just shows you what kind of athlete he is. He is a special, special kind of player who has a, a, a feel for the game that comes with having grown up as Andrew Jones's dad. And we have seen that whether, and you, you know, it's been recently making you feel old as every single time the Toronto Blue Jays come to town. <laughs> and I remember doing interviews, you know, when you're talking to, to Kevin Vizio, go, man, I used to interview your dad all the time for pregame uh, back in my days when I was doing the Giants. But, you know, when, when you start thinking about these kids, and we have it a lot here, we've dealt with it with the Golden State Warriors, when you're talking about guys who grew up, their dads were in the NBA, Steph and Clay, they grew up around it. There's something to that. And when you look at the scouting, do you bring that into it going, it's not the moment won't be too big. You know, Ken Griffey Jr., these guys grew up in these clubhouses. They understand the game from a very early age. Yeah, I think it, it, it can't not figure into it. You don't want to put too much weight in it because just because you have the last name of someone who played the game doesn't automatically make you a first-round talent or a superstar. But the guys who have shown they're talented, they're not going to be bothered by being a top, you know, the number one overall pick or a top five pick. And you've got Matt Holiday's kid. Also, even Elijah Green, whose dad, Eric, was a Pro Bowl tight end, gets that part of it in terms of understanding the, the spotlight. But those who grew up, even if they didn't grow up around the game, they have a much better idea of what the process is going to be like. Because even if you're Andrew Jones's kid, you still have to go likely to rookie ball, to A ball. You need to you know make stops along the way. Just because of your last name, you're not going to suddenly get put in the big leagues, nor should you developmentally. So the grind aspect of it, no matter who you are, I think is something that uh, will is probably hammered into them, you know, at a certain point in time when it looks like they're going to play the game at the next level. So even if they didn't say roam around the clubhouses, which a lot of them did, uh, they just have that innate sense of what's, you know, what's to come in front of them, how to get through a 162 game season, uh, which is often the biggest thing for, for amateur players uh, to go from, even a college season to a minor league season of 140 games is a lot. And having that institutional knowledge because of, of your family helps not to mention, as you said, the, the DNA that is often passed down. You know, we're looking at the draft and players and timelines. You know, there's still people that believe there's X amount of at bats. There's X amount of innings you're going to need in the minor leagues. And, you know, I, I admit in, in years, you know, we're just going off a four-year stretch where the A's were in the playoffs three out of four years. Even last year when we didn't make it, we won 86 games. You're not really thinking about the minor league guys as much. But now that we're the, we've got the worst record in baseball, you're like, all right, where's the help coming from? When are these guys going to get here? You want to rush guys. And you'll see a guy like Julio Rodriguez. This guy's hitting bombs against us every single game in Seattle, and he's 21 years old. So – are now our kids more advanced? Are we expecting them to get here faster if they're legit major leaguers? Or are we still trying to be patient and say, you need 1,500 at-bats or X amount of innings as a pitcher? I don't know that there's a number. Uh, I think that, you know, I don't know that you should ever use Julio Rodriguez as the the sort of uh, case study because there are always guys, you know, like that who do it much faster than, than you would expect. I do think that the gap between amateur baseball and professional baseball has narrowed somewhat. Um, 
maybe maybe not as much in terms of internationally, just because those guys are so young. Julio Rodriguez was 16 when he signed, so you never you never know what that kid is going to become when he starts becoming a man, which is what Julio Rodriguez did in the Mariners system. But even you know high school with all the with all the showcases and the ability to show what you can do uh, against very good competition, even if you're from you know, cold weather state where you don't get it in the spring uh, and, and even and then the college game, the program, I think the gap has shrunk somewhat. Now, that's just not a universal thing where and nor have I done a, a huge study, but I, I, anecdotally, it feels to me like guys are getting to the big leagues a little bit faster. I don't know that there's an expectation. I think that each organization has different benchmarks that they want their players to, to meet. From a development standpoint, I just think that players are often hitting those benchmarks more quickly than they once did. You know, I've learned over the years of my career, and even a guy that used to work at ESPN used to be my radio partner, Rick Buecher, covering the NBA at ESPN, used to talk about putting out his mock drafts saying, you know, I was going to have to put out like 15 mock drafts. So my first one isn't what I really thought compared to like my 15th is what I thought was going to happen. Baseball, I came to imagine what putting a mock draft uh, together is like. That's why it's not like, hey, at number 19, what do you see the A's getting? But when you start to look at where the A's are picking, a lot of value there. Do you still, is it high school? Is it college? What do you see for the A's at 19? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think I'm working currently as we speak on my sixth mock draft, and Jim Callis, my colleague, has also done five. Yeah. So we've we've done a lot, and it, it's yeah. We we work hard on, on it, and we want to try to get it right. And what we often say about them, especially early on, but even this one is, we want to put a name with each team where someone with the team isn't going to look at it and say. Well, there's no way we would take that guy. So, that you know, we'll do one last one like Saturday night into Sunday morning right before the draft where hopefully we'll be able to shake some trees and, and get some legitimate information. It's tough when the team at the top really holds things close to the vest and no one really knows what the Orioles are going to do. As for the A's, uh, there is some talent. I think there's a second tier of college hitters that make uh, that could make a lot of sense. Um, we've... <laughs> for, um, let me see, like six or seven mocks in a row. We've put uh, Dylan Beavers, who's from Cal. Uh, and now, some of that may be just a little bit of geographic laziness, if I'm uh, giving full disclosure. But, you know, I think the A's have some interest. He's got an intriguing power-speed combination. You know, has a chance to be, you know, a college bat with, uh, with a number of ways to impact the game. But they could go, you know, in a, a whole bunch of different ways. There's some high school hitters, which they've shown they're not afraid to do, that they that could be right around there, and, and some college arms as well. The college arm crop has really been thinned or at least made really much more difficult to pinpoint because so many of them are hurt or coming off of injuries, you know, are rehabbing from surgery. Uh, so, you know, there will be a, a bucket of those kinds of players that if the A's – are willing or any of the teams that are picking in that sort of 17 to 25 range say they could go that route. It's just a, a question of your, your willingness to take on that kind of risk. Well, we do know that uh, the A's have spent some time down the street at Cal Berkeley uh, at, at these games. So not going to be shocked if, if Beavers, and we've asked David Force, and he jokes about it, uh, but we've said, oh, you spent a lot of time over at Cal. Is that what we're looking at? But, you know, the one thing you can like somebody all, all you want. We can see this in any draft, but 
he's got to be there when you pick. Sure. And I mean, and listen, that, that's an easy get for anyone in the A's organization to go to Cal to watch a game. Um, you know, just like people would always make a big deal about a general manager going to see some kid play in Florida until you realize that their spring training home was 10 minutes from there. It's like, it's good in information. You don't want to put too much weight into the fact that, wow, an A's executive went to Cal to, to watch baseball. Um, because not only could you see Dylan Beavers, there are other players to see also, and it's easy to get there. Uh, you know, so sure there's interest, uh, you know, yes, they've scouted him a lot. That does not mean even if he is there, that Dylan Beavers is a, you know, lockdown. This is the guy you're going to get. Now, if they take him, I want you to edit this part out. (laughs) Uh, two more questions for you. With let, let's do a little college with the mega conferences, kind of they're going to happen. We got Texas and OU now going to the SEC. The SEC has now become a dominant conference. I played baseball at San Jose State back in the day when it was Fullerton, Long Beach, Fresno State. We were the Big West. We were the dominant conference, sending all these teams, you know, like Mark Kotze, Phil and Evan, and these guys. Um, how's this going to play, do you think, for college baseball when you have? Teams in L.A. are in the same conference with uh, Rutgers in New Jersey. You got Maryland. You got teams on the East Coast. Like, how's this going to play? Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the interesting thing without having spent too much time digging into that that move in particular. For me, they obviously weren't thinking about baseball when they decided to make that the move to the Big Ten yeah. because that's a step down from the Pac-12 uh, in terms of baseball. Uh, I think the SEC – uh, even without those additions, uh, was still probably the best conference in, in college baseball. But the Pac-12 was really, really good, uh, you know, right there with the ACC. And, you know, that move, I think, makes it, you know, it makes it a little bit harder to evaluate what good performances mean. You know, obviously, you're still scouting the players for what their swing looks like, what their delivery looks like, how their stuff plays. Um, and their data, you know, that they, they can get their hands on in terms of exit velo, launching, all that kind of stuff, which is universal. But if you're trying to get a sense of, hmm, is this going to work, and you're not seeing the same quality of pitching that you once were, it, it's, I think it's another challenge. But, it's you know, scouts have been doing this all along, you know, finding players where you had no idea because there's, there's some projection that you have to do, I think, for whatever reason, Brandon Nimmo, the Mets pops in my mind. The guy played in Wyoming where there was no high school baseball. And he was a first-round pick. So scouts are as, as much of a crapshoot as the draft is and as much as it doesn't work out, especially as you get further on in the draft, they're really, really good at evaluating players for who they are regardless of where they're playing. I will end on this. Uh, recently on the David Force show, we asked him, are you in favor of an international draft? I've read a little bit about it. I know we're in negotiations between baseball and the Players Association. David Force's answer was yes, I'm in favor of it. I don't know how the other 29 teams feel. I don't know how you feel. Where are you on the international draft? Should we have one? Would it be better for the game? Now, so I think this is two different questions. Are you suggesting that there'd be an international draft? Or are you suggesting that there'd be one draft? Like, is it one or two drafts? Either or, you tell me. I, I, so, yeah, I, uh, you know, 
I think that what they've done with the international system, it kind of introducing the bonus pools to kind of curb spending and, and really to try to make sure that people aren't skirting the rules as much as possible has been largely positive. Um, I think one of the issues, and I remember talking to an international scout a while ago, is that because each country really does things so differently, trying to put it into one system is hard enough. And they've done that a lot with a lot of the showcases that they're doing. It's much more difficult to sort of uncover a, a, a gem, you know, although it's the same as a 40th round draft pick. You don't hide the players anymore. So question of scouting them, but there's so many showcase events and combines uh, in Latin America that that's less and less likely. So we're kind of moving in that direction. The thing that I think gets difficult is how you could possibly compare a 16-year-old from some small village in the Dominican Republic to a 21-year-old at Stanford, say, you know, and that's what they're going to have to do if it becomes one large draft. So I, I guess if I were to vote, and I don't have a vote in any way, shape, or form. I We're going to make you commissioner for the day. This I, I is might, your decision. Uh, there's so many things I could do in one day, so <laughs> careful. Um, I would have I would have two separate drafts just because I think merging them from a logistics standpoint would be really, really difficult. That makes sense. I think you're – I mean, when you when you put it that way, how am I comparing a kid – in the in the Dominican Republic to a kid at Stanford. Yeah, I mean, I mean listen, it's, it's hard to compare a kid. A minor, to too. We're talking about a minor. Right. I mean, it's hard to compare a kid, you know, a, a 21-year-old junior who's three years of talent at Stanford or or Vanderbilt to a, a 17-year-old from uh, rural Alabama, you know, or whatever it is, or someone who hasn't played against really good competition. It's some of the same thing but not quite as uh, not quite as spread out. How international scouts do what they do is remarkable to me. I mean, you remember when you were 16, I didn't resemble anything what I looked like by the time I was 21. So it's, you know, the, the ability to project and figure out who are going to be the good players, you know, even in the domestic, you know, scouting is hard. The international scouting to me is, you know, it's such a Herculean task. Yeah, and there's politics involved and what how you can get in and out of Venezuela and then you yep. got the politics with, with the Japanese league and Japanese players. I mean well, that's so a whole that's a whole different thing. It's crazy. And, and yeah, that's why someone like me, it's like, I don't know. I'm just waiting for someone to tell us how it's gonna work. But uh I just know from our uh, David Ford said he'd like to see it, so we'll see. But uh, have a great broadcast, have a great draft. You got the biggest ratings, right? You've ever gotten before the last draft. Sure. I, you know, I try not to pay attention to that kind of stuff, but I do think, you know, one of the benefits of all-star week, you know, and we've, it's been on TV since MLB, you know, pretty much since MLB network came into being, it was on ESPN for a couple of years, but it grows in popularity each year. There's a lot more college baseball on TV. So I think there's more curiosity. So I expect if you don't set records every year, it's going to continue to grow in terms of people at least wanting to check it out. Hey, great stuff. It's always awesome to have you on the program. Have a great draft, and we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. He is the man, Jonathan Mayo from MLB.com, breaking down the draft. Did you get everything you wanted? And by the way, the answer, I think something we need to clip is normally with Cody, I'd go clip that uh, on the international draft. Like, you can now start to see – well, you can go read about it in The Athletic. It's like 8,000 pages you can read about it. <laughs> or you can listen to him, just how complicated it is. 
Like, what are you going to do? The rules are different. You can't draft 16-year-olds in this country. But you can draft you, – you're going to draft 16-year-olds. You can sign them right now. You can sign 15, 16. You, you, they're making commitments to kids who are 13 years old in foreign countries right now. How are you going to – I mean, how do you compare a 16-year-old in the Dominican to a kid at Stanford or Cal? Like, how do you do that? And, and, and like, how do you put this all together? And, obviously, you just can't say – um, I want to draft a guy from Japan. Oh, no, no, no. You got to do a business deal with the team he's affiliated with. Or are you going to now take high school kids out of Japan? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that is just so far beyond what we know. And I think so far beyond what everybody knows. Because as David Force would tell you, I don't, I, I mean, how do we know? What are you going to do with Japanese? Right now, you've got to do a negotiation with the Japanese teams. We, we've seen it multiple times, whether it's Ichiro or Shohei Otani or whoever. Um, Godzilla, it doesn't matter which guy. You've got to do a negotiation, posting fee and all of that. That's not going away. How's that going to work with a draft? Yeah, when you mentioned the Japanese league, the first thing I thought of was... You realize you're on video now, Cody, so when you always have to go back to to the mute... Well, it's better than everyone hearing me breathing when I'm not talking. (laughs) Um, But yeah, like the the posting is the first thing I thought of because you have to pay that, and then you have to negotiate to get a contract. So that's the thing with Shohei Otani uh, and every Japanese player we've seen come over from Japan. There's another guy that's going to be the hot hot one this year. It's... um, uh, Sasaki, I think his last name is. He's a pitcher. The guy that had like the the perfect game, then also threw another one back to back. He's going to be a ton of innings, by the way. He he's not he's not four and dive yeah. over there. What we've heard. He's uh the the Japanese league Sandy Alcantara Alcantara. Um, so or, or Alcantara, however you want to say it. Either way is fine. In, in my understanding, you know what we should do. <laughs> put put an email together, and send it to the Marlins PR. And of course, you're doing it from your A's email address. You'll get a return answer. Say, you know, spell it out, dude. Is it is it Alcantara or Alcantara? And they will respond, and then we can have the official and say this is what Marlins PR is saying. Because it's it like literally it's all over the board. I go to Baseball Reference. Yeah, I'm I'm going to it right now, and it's it's Alcantara. Yeah, it's. It's, and you listen to you listen to their play by play guys, and they say Alcantara. Yeah, Al, and then, as you said, you go to Baseball Tonight podcast. Buster only, obviously, somebody who uh, you, you realize is legit, and the people that he has on are legit baseball people, and they're saying what Alcantara, like right here on Baseball Reference, it says Al or all all da, uh, dash con c o n dash ta dash ra Alcantara. <laughs> Yeah, but you'll hear people say Alcantara. I don't know. And he's he's the best pitcher in the game. Yeah, I said it. No, he is. Right now he is. He's the best pitcher in the game. He's going to be – he might be the only guy that gets – You didn't ask me last year. You didn't ask me two years ago or five years ago who is the best pitcher in Major League Baseball right now. It's Sandy Alcantara. Alcantara, Alcantara, he's the best pitcher, and there's no doubt. And I thought, thought was interesting, 
And by the way, I will I will admit that I I'm going to have to maybe eat some crow on Co- Corey Seager today, literally today. But at 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 what point do we want the All Star Game to still be the best players? We like sentimental stuff, but are, are we getting a little over our skis on the sentimental stuff? Isn't the all-star game about the best players in the game, the current guys right now who are all-stars, who are the best players? I think I know where you're going with this and who you're singling out. Who am I singling out? The, who am I? The, I, I so when we use the term future Hall of Framer, when people talk about Buster Posey, it's we saying say it facetiously. But when I say it this time, we mean it. Future Hall of Famer, Albert Pujols. Nope, it's not him. I have no problem with that. Oh, you don't mind him being in the home run derby either? No, I don't. Who cares? Yeah. I mean, if Albert pops a couple out, it's good for TV ratings. People want to see it. I, no problem with that. It's home run derby, right? And even the game, the game. You got to love the game, Jeff Kent. Um the game is still an exhibition, but it is we want to see the best players. I, I'm fine with pool holes and, and Cabrera to me is a mistake because he's still playing. Honor him next year when he's on the last year of his deal. You're just saying, well, if we honor Albert, we'll have him. I mean, I get why they're doing it. I either way, I don't care. Uh, Miguel Cabrera is great. Albert Pujols is great. You want to honor the, honor the two of the greatest. You know, we, we, we may never in our lifetime see numbers like this. Is that fair? Uh, yes, I agree. For both of them, I mean, Cabrera and Pujols. I don't know how many years we got left, but if you're going to see that many home runs with that many hits, with that many RBIs and OPSs and all that kind of you know, triple crown winner and MVPs, and if it wasn't for Bonds, Pujols would even have more MVPs. I don't know if we're going to see the combination of batting average, home runs, RBIs, OP, you know, the whole thing. That when you, you look at Pujols and you look at Cabrera, it doesn't matter if you're traditional or you're just into analytics. They they fill it all up. They're They're two of the greatest hitters of all time. And the way the game is now and the way the game's being taught, you just don't see guys that hit home runs be able to go flip the ball the opposite way for as many base hits as Miguel Cabrera has. You just don't. Guys are just not built that way. That's why you have these mass shifts going on because guys can't do that. But So I don't have a problem with it. I'm like, when you're trying to dictate, well, it's in L.A., it should be Clayton Kershaw and Shohei Otani on the mound. That's a joke. I'm sorry. What? Aren't we supposed to have the very best start the game? If they can go. It's an honor to start the All-Star game. I mean, aren't we supposed to put the very best out there? And I'm just thinking to myself, Sandy Alcantara. We'll just call him old Sandy. Old Sandy should be on the mound. He's the best pitcher in baseball. Facts. And and he deserves the nod. I don't care where the game's played. He deserves, well, Kershaw. Kershaw's had his moments. Well, he's never, that, he's never started an all-star game. That's why they're saying, let him start it. He's had his moments in his career. Yeah, he, 
The big knock. This on- is still about this. The game still is about the best players now. Kershaw is Kershaw the best starter in the National League? No, he has sixty-seven less innings than Sandy does. Sixty-seven I mean, less. And I'd rather have Ver. If you want to go sentimental, put Verlander out there instead of Otani. What about McClanahan? Well, he should start it. Yeah, it should be McClanahan and Sandy, the two teams but from I'm Florida. If you want to go sentimental, I'm going to go. I'm going to go Verlander. Yeah, I mean, because he's been awesome. Actually, probably Verlander should start it anyway. Look Whoa. at Verlander's Whoa. numbers. Give Whoa. me starts and give me innings pitched. I've got time. Okay. Or do I have time? Uh, we I don't should, know. If we time. should get the email in a few minutes. Studio here. I constantly have people coming over and looking like I'm. I'm like a zoo animal. By the way, you don't even know that. Uh, and I would move to show you. There's like the a. The door here is a glass door, and there's a window next to it, so it's almost like I'm like a zoo animal, and people come walk by going, who's in there? What are they doing? Uh, Verlander's had 16 starts. He's at 103 and a third innings, 98 strikeouts. He's 11 wins. McClanahan's pitched in 104 innings and 17 starts, 141 strikeouts, and he has nine wins. He has a 1.73 ERA. Verlander's at two exactly. So McClanahan actually has more starts and better numbers. Just less wins. Wait, how many more starts? Wait, he, he has, has one more start. What? He has 17 starts. McClanahan does. He has nine wins, 104 innings, 104, 100, 104 and a third. And he has Wait, how many innings does Verlander have? Uh, Verlander has 103. So he has one less inning than McClanahan. He gets it. And McClanahan has 43 more strikeouts. You know, you, you guys and your strikeouts. That's what the game's all about anymore. Strikeouts. It's just. <laughs> You know it's sad. Punch outs used to be awesome. Give me this. Give the old man this. Strikeout pitchers used to be awesome. They're not anymore. They're not. That's why the guys like it's like the guys the guys like Tony Gonsolin and and Paul Blackburn are rare because they don't strike guys out and they don't throw hard. I'll tell you what. I'm shocked by the numbers you give me, McClan. Because every single time I look up, McClanahan's thrown six innings, five innings. Yeah, he's. Yeah. Let me. I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm shocked he's got more more than Verlander. I'm actually. He also has one more start than Verlander too, though. I mean, he he to me is your typical new. I come in, throw as hard as I can, and I'm not going to give you a ton. And they're going to the bullpen. Um, I'll go back to the beginning of June. Here's his numbers: six innings, eight innings, six, six, seven, seven, six. Yeah, he's he's. he's He's a bunch of six innings. He's had double. Just go to his, yeah, I'm just going to go to his overall game log. Can I go to his overall game log? Four and a third, four and two thirds, six, seven, five, five and a third. But ever seven, since, ever seven, since May, he's been pretty good. Wait, can I finish? Five and a third, seven, seven, six, 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 eight, six. Six. I mean, yet the majority of his starts are six innings or less. I'm going to back away from the computer. Am I wrong? No, but that's unfortunately that's we all know that's the way the game is now. That's the game you like. That's the game you wanted. You want a guy to come out and just be full bore, and then we'll take you out after five or six, and bye bye. We'll let the bullpen do the rest. Because if you want to talk, if you want to do entry, by the way. What's that going to be like in the postseason, where the heroes are made? I went five innings. Uh, well, 
Is this guy going to be hell on wheels in the postseason? Well, no. Not saying he won't. Not no, saying he won't. Probably not because uh, we saw what happened with Blake Snell. They'll probably pull him out after six innings or five and a third. And I, I'm I'm totally lost. Uh, we sh- we got to get the emo before Kylie calls in about twenty minutes. How long's emo? Sixteen and a half, about seventeen minutes. So we have pl- we have time. All right. Here is Scott Emerson, the pitching coach. What do we call this again? Uh, pitching with the pitching guru, Scott Emerson. Pitching with the pitching guru. We get into we get into like we get into some data here. Yeah, we talked. You ready? Yeah, I'm, uh, this is going to be one second. Yep, I'm good now. Here is the pitching coach, Scott Emerson. Time now to talk a little pitching with the pitching guru, Scott Emerson, right here on A's Cast. Emo, how are you there? In uh, Are you in Arlington? Are you in Dallas? Where are you? Well, we stay in Dallas. So uh, right now I'm in Dallas and then uh, getting ready to go to the field. You know, on days like this, now that you're getting to go play the Rangers in a stadium that has a roof, just talk about truly from a pitching standpoint what the difference is knowing that it's going to be 72 degrees versus it's going to be 102 and how you'd really have to mentally prepare for that kind of heat. Well, you know, you know when you're playing in the heat, it just, you know, it can be taxing and draining. Uh, but, you know, here in Texas with, with the dome, they keep it closed the majority of the time. Uh, you know, it's just a good atmosphere. Uh, you feel good about yourself. You know, when the guys play catch, they always talk about how much easier it is to bounce back um, from day to day. Just a little bit on the roof. You know, the ball might travel a little bit farther. Uh, obviously, we don't love that as pitchers, but uh you know, they did a really nice job on this new stadium. What is the difference from a standpoint of a hitter's ballpark to where the old ballpark was totally an offensive ballpark to, to what it is now? Well, I just think, you know, uh, you know, pop-ups, uh, what I deem pop-ups, you know, at the old ballpark were homers. And uh, this ballpark, uh, you know, it, it plays a little bit more true to both sides, offense and uh and on the pitching side. So, uh, you know, it's good when you can come here and you can make your pitches and get out. You know, obviously, if you don't make your pitches at any ballpark, you're in trouble. But, uh, you know, sometimes you you make a pitch uh, at the old ballpark down and away and, and somebody hits an oppo taco homer and you're kind of like, dang, I'm making good pitches, just not getting any results. So, you know, it's, it's good to pitch in ballparks that uh, – you can make your pitches and, and get good results out of it. What was the reaction like among the coaching staff, especially for you when you officially found out Paul Blackburn is an all-star? Oh, it was great. You know, Paul's put in a lot of work uh, over the last two years to get to where he's at. Um, and, you know, we knew a little bit earlier than Paul knew. And, you know, just an excitement uh, from the fact that, you know, this kid persevered and, and went through a, a lot to get back to the big leagues, and, and he had an outstanding first half. Yeah, he, he is just, uh, to me, an inspiration, and there's a lot of kids out there that can learn from him that not everything is going to go your way. It, it, th- th- this road is not going to be easy. It's going to be really, really hard. And that's why you got to stick with it. And that's why you got to realize that there's going to be times when people tell you that, hey, it's a, hey, the gig's up. It's time to go get a job. It's time to go get a career. It's a, 
time to start your second life. And, you know, it, you, you play till they rip that jersey off you. Just how much respect do you have for him from a guy that, yeah, he could have said at some point it's time to do something else. DFA'd before last season as he says I was fired, and now he's going to L.A. to represent the athletics in the All-Star game. You know, it's just an amazing story. My dad always says, you know, persistence to purpose leads to success. And, and Paulie, uh, like I said, he was persistent in the things that he did. Uh, he, he, you know, wants to play Major League Baseball. He wants to be good. And, and the great thing about it is in this uh, uh, world of velocity, uh, Paul Blackburn just went out and proved that you don't have to have all this velocity to be a Major League All-Star. You got to go out there and learn how to pitch. And I think that's what Paul's done over the last couple of years is he's really has a much better understanding of what his baseball can do, how he can use his baseball, how he can mix his pitches. And, you know, like I said, you know, uh, a lot of people, in my opinion, helped him uh, get back to where he is. Our AAA pitching coach for the last few years, Rick Rodriguez, our pitching coordinator, Gil Patterson, and our, our throwing performance coach, uh, Casey Upperman, uh, did a great job of, getting him back to uh, uh, where he needed to be to be competitive at the big league level. And Paulie just, uh, you know, he's got the understanding of how to use his pitches now. And when you execute those pitches, he's really good. Do you credit more the mental side or more the physical side? Well, I think, you know, you know, it's always the mental side. I think the the grind is uh, confidence. Do you believe in yourself? Uh, physically, you know, the attributes of the pitches really haven't changed all that much. Uh, but uh, I just like the way he's mixing it. And I like the way he's using his pitches. And, um, you know, from a, a physical side, like I said, it's kind of always been the same. But uh, I think the mental approach this year is he's believing in himself. He was given an opportunity to be in that rotation day in and day out. And he's taken advantage of it. You know, from the physical side, we've heard about change in grips. Like, like, what has changed physically for him to have this type of season? Well, I think physically, you know, uh, for me, is his delivery is a little bit more re- repeatable. So, therefore, that release point out in the front is uh, more consistent. Maybe uh, his pitches tunnel better out of a consistent uh, sl- arm slot. Uh, you know, pitch grips for me, you know, guys move balls around in their hands plenty of times that just get different grips and get different feels of the baseball. Uh, that's what we do, you know, each and every day when we're in the bullpen and we got the slow-mo cam to help us out to identify if in uh, the track band to identify if a change is good or not. So, you know, I think guys are constantly, you know, trying to find different grips and different shapes and different movements. So, I, I would say the you know, the overall consistency of a repeatable delivery to get the hand out in front to throw quality strikes. When you look at the data and the technology, and a guy's down the bullpen and he's working on stuff, what 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 are the things you most look for? There's a lot of readings, but what are the readings that mean the most? Well, I think you know if you're looking at your your uh, your horizontal break. Your, your vertical break, meaning up and down, whether the ball's staying up or the ball's, you know, uh, dropping, falling off the table, I like to say. Uh, your spin rate and your spin access. The spin access is how the ball's leaving your hand, which way it's spinning. Uh, 
the easiest way to explain spin access is how the ball spins out of your hand and what it looks like compared to a clock. You know, you always heard the 12-6 curveball. Uh, you always heard about, you know, uh, the fastball with backspin. So I think, you know, those are the things that I look for. Is, is the release consistent on all your pitches? Are we gaining movement on sliders? Are we gaining vertical movement, which on a slider would be a little bit of drop? Uh, so, I mean, those numbers you're just constantly looking at. But, you know, in general, a lot of guys in the big leagues, they're staying within a, a range. And are we consistent with staying in that range? Yeah, that's always so interesting. You know, when you start talking about how the ball comes out of your hands, when you tell people there's a spin rate for a fastball, what exactly does that mean? Well, it's, it's RPMs. It's, uh, it's how fast that spinning is a ball is spinning over the course of an hour of movement. So, uh, or an hour of time. So you get, uh, 2,600 RPMs. Obviously the ball doesn't spin, uh, 2,600 times, uh, going to the plate. Uh, so it's over a course of time. And, uh, you know, when, when the ball spins faster, it generally stays truer and straight. And when the ball spins uh, a little bit looser and you don't have as much spin rate, your ball tends to, you know, drop and fall out a little bit. So, you know, you're looking for fastballs to be over 2,300 uh, so they can keep a true true line to the plate. And then you're looking for sinkers to be, for me, I like around under 2,000. So that tells me that ball is moving more at the bottom of the zone and the gravity's uh, pushing it down where with a four seam fastball at, at 23 plus that the Magnus force, we can get into this one uh, all we want, but that Magnus force is keeping that ball in the air a little bit longer and the perceived movement doesn't look like it's dropping at all. So, you know, um, Samantha Schultz, we have, um, she, she's a physicist in ball movement. So she helps us out down there just to make sure that, uh, you know, I'm saying it properly and to make sure that I'm seeing it properly. You know, I've been doing this a long time with the track bands and the rap sodos and, and all this stuff. I got a firm understanding of what it does, but to, to have somebody to reassure me every now and then is good to have also. How important is it to understand what the grip is and the release point and how that affects all the numbers? Well, you know, if, if you're off by just a little, you know, the, the Major League Baseball, not only do you want to throw, you know, strikes, but you got to throw quality strikes. You know, there's a difference between uh, locating a baseball and commanding a baseball. So, you know, the command for me is that ability to almost put the ball where you want it at uh, every single pitch. So these movements, these spins can help us uh, identify where we should start the baseball out to uh, get it to land where we want it to land. So, you know, each and every number is important. Uh, if the pitchers are off a little bit on their release point, um, it's going to alter where that ball is going. So, you know, it's, it's kind of studying what each guy uh, does. You know, for me, every spin doesn't equal the same spin for each pitcher because the delivery and deception pay, uh, play an important role into the pitch as well. You, you could uh, hide the baseball and have good spin, or you could show the baseball and have the same spin as the guy hiding the ball and the guy hiding the ball longer, in my opinion, 
will beat the hitter more often than the guy who overexposes the baseball by bailing out and, and what we call being side to side with his mechanics and his arms late. Your arm is late, but you could have the uh, same attributes as someone whose arm isn't late. And the guy with the arm who's late, the ball's more visible, uh, and that will increase the success rate of the hitter. But the guy that hides the baseball and has all these attributes, in my opinion, gains the advantage. Now, every pitcher is different. There's no question. You got righties, you got lefties. Everybody is, has had a different path getting here. Do you want to establish like a baseline with a guy and work off that? I just, how do you do it individually with each pitcher? Cause each pitcher, all their spin rates and the way they grip the baseball, throw the baseball, the way they do things are different. Well, you know, obviously, you know, like you said, every, everybody's different, but you know, for me, the count isn't different. You know, if you can win count advantages, you know, obviously we, you know, everybody always, you know, preaches uh, strike one and then, you know, we preach win the one, one count because that's a huge advantage to be able to be one, two, and instead of two, one. So, you know, for me, you could take a guy uh, who doesn't have great attributes and ball metrics, but still be very successful major league pitcher by knowing how to, you know, win the counts by throwing strikes by, you know, uh, you know, I always talk about changing speeds. So the, the guys that uh, I'd rather have those type of guys, the guys that always throw strikes, they're always winning counts. They always have the advantage. They're, they're the, they're the, you know, the predator and they're the aggressor. They're the ones that are set in the tone. The, the guys that have great spin, but can't get people to swing or can't throw it in the strike zone. And they live in the two, one count where they're generally not as successful as the guy who gains the count advantage. So, for me, it's still going out there, understanding, you know, what can I do with my fastball when I throw it, you know, uh, where can I go with it to certain hitters. And then, you know, everybody knows that a breaking ball right-handed uh, on right-handed hitter, you know, down and away is good. And down and away below is, is real good for chase. We, we all know that. Uh, it's have who has that ability to say, okay, this particular hitter can hit fastballs up and in. I can exploit him there. This hitter can't hit fastballs down and away. I can exploit him there. This hitter can't hit fastballs up and away, or this hitter can't hit fastballs down and in. So the ability to know where you can go with your fastball, gain count advantages, and then you know have that ability to throw that breaking ball down and away and that breaking ball down and away below, and the ability to throw a changeup in a fastball count. I think those are huge. So that's called pitching. And the art of pitching is the ability to go in the strike zone when you need to, to go outside of the strike zone when you need to, and get an out. And I think that, uh, you know, pitching is the key. Count advantage is, is what, you know, I'm really looking for. Do you have the ability to not walk people? Don't give up free passes. Just don't, don't do it. You know, uh, the more 90 feet you give away, the more opportunity for teams to score runs off you. So, you know, challenge them, be aggressive, win count advantages. And the guys that are do that, you know, look at those numbers. They're very successful pitchers. Let's end on this. You're going to have an off day in Texas. You're going to be in Dallas. Then you're going to be in Houston. Uh, what, 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 what is the food of choice? Are we going barbecue? Are we going steaks? What, what, what are you doing when you're in, in, in big D? Well, remember, you get three meals a day, so uh, all would be my proper choice right there. 
<laughs> take it all. Take the barbecue, take the steaks, go out and find a nice steak, uh, have a good breakfast, have some Texas toast, and uh, prepare for the Astros. That That's probably my day, you know. It's, it's uh, get some breakfast, uh, do some scouting work, go to lunch, do some scouting work, go to dinner and do some scouting work. You know, it's, it's, you know, I like to prepare and uh, give the guys the best chance of success and, and uh, study the craft. And uh, that's mostly what I do on off days, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the rest of the series here in, in Dallas and, and, uh, go after these Texas Rangers. What, what do you got going during the all-star break? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go home for a couple days, uh, see my wife, see, see my dog, and, uh, you know, relax for a few hours before I probably start on uh, the Detroit Tigers, who we play in a doubleheader when we get back. So uh, it'll be a little bit different because I'll be at the house. So excited to go home. But uh, it's a quick break. We got uh, I'll get home hopefully Sunday night and fly back to Oakland on Wednesday. Well, enjoy the break. Well deserved. Take care, my friend. The art of pitching is awesome, and we will talk to you in the second half. All right, sounds good. Love me some Scott Emerson. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's where the game is today. And from a pitching standpoint, the game outside of velocity, do you see how he doesn't base everything off of velocity? But what you can learn as a pitcher, especially like down in the bullpen, when you release the ball out of your hand, right? Whether you're throwing a break, a curveball, you're throwing a slide, you're throwing a split, change up, whatever. There's certain times where, wow, that looked good, that felt good. And you want to be able to repeat it over and over and over again. And what's great about when it looks good and it feels good, you can look at the data and the data will say, yep, that's the one. That's the one you want to repeat or try to repeat over and over and over and over and over again, the muscle memory. And the data helps quantify what you're doing. Yeah, this is working. And then there's sometimes where it may not feel right. What it looks like and what it feels, as they like to say, your feels, it may not be good. But the data says it is. And you just have to learn that change. That change in your grip, that change in your arm slot, where you're coming from, all that can change. And it might not feel good. It might not feel normal. But the data says, well, look, when the ball comes out of your hand, it does this, and that's better than the way you were doing it. So are you going to go back to what felt good and didn't work? Or are you going to work on what does look better data-wise and does look better and sharper, whatever pitch we're talking about, and just say, man, make it feel good. You hear Tiger Woods, one of the greatest athletes of all time, talk about his feels. And sometimes he's doing stuff and the feels, they're not there. But he realized, forget about my feels. What, 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 what feels good to me at the time may be wrong. And you got to go with what's working. And then when it comes together, when what's working and your feelings come together, that's when the magic happens. You know? Mariano Rivera didn't have the cutter. 
Mariano Rivera was a bad pitcher. Have you ever looked up his uh... his minor league numbers? Yeah. Wasn't he a former? Oh, no, that was Trevor Hoffman was a shortstop. No, Trevor Hoffman was a shortstop at Arizona. What, were Mo, what was Mo in the minor leagues from Panama City, Panama? Uh, let's see. His career in the minor leagues in seven years, he had a 2.35 ERA. He was 27 and 18. He actually started 68 games, so he was a starter at one point. Um, his worst years were his two years in AAA where he had a 3.98 ERA. This is the great, one of the greatest pitchers of all time. Oof. I don't know. I'm seeing I'm seeing one year he had a 5.81 ERA in six games, six starts. Yeah, then it could be. 1994. Yeah. Uh, where was he playing at? That was not good. Oh, that was in Columbus. Yeah, that's AAA. So it just goes to show, even you know, one of the greatest pitchers of all time, you know, wasn't didn't have that cutter, and then all of a sudden learned that cutter, and then learned how to repeat it, and it's over and over and over again. You mentioned Trevor Hoffman; that's him with the circle change. Trevor Hoffman's career changed over time. You know, Trevor Hoffman had a ninety-six, ninety-seven mile an hour fastball with a hook and the great changeup. And then hurt his shoulder, and the velocity came way way down. But still, at the end of his career, guy's throwing 89, 90, but he had that changeup, and he's, you know, at that point when he retired, had the most career saves in the history of baseball. And Mo took him over, but the National League saves leader gets the Trevor Hoffman Award every year. So you just got. Find it. What was Bruce Souter before he perfected his split finger as one of the great closers? It takes time. You got to get in the lab and you got to figure it out. Problem is with the lab now is everybody's just trying to figure out how do I throw harder? How do I throw? And, you know, arms, you only got so much before the arm pops, unfortunately. And that's the thing, like, when we've, we've talked with the Hall of Famer, Raleigh Fingers, who in the offseason, do you remember what Raleigh did in the offseason? And no, not play golf. What did what did Raleigh Fingers do in the offseason? Uh, he had to get a job. No. I thought it, was, it wasn't him that told us he had to get a job in the offseason? Raleigh Fingers would swim. Oh, okay. That was popping in my head, too. That was the thing that he would do. He would swim. It wasn't about lifting weights. He would swim. He knew back then, and which we all know now, swimming laps is great for your body, for everything. Raleigh Fingers knew that back in the day and would swim to strengthen himself. And that's why he had the rubber arm. And you just, you know, it was it was back watching the, during COVID when with uh, Ken Korak and Ray Fossey, we were going over the 1972 World Series. And you're just seeing just, well, we did the, uh, we did the a we did the ALCS against Detroit, and then the were the World Series, and you just saw how devastating that slider was for Raleigh Fingers. It was just can you imagine you're a hitter, 
and he's that big old lanky guy, and he's coming down that mound, and you're seeing all you're seeing, you're seeing this pitch come right at you. You think of the tunneling that we talk about, where his fastball's coming here, slider's coming here, and then at the last minute, this goes gone. I mean, unbelievable. And that's, you know, talking with Scott, Scott Emerson and, and using track, man, with these pitchers and finding, you know, you can kind of find out your baseline. And once you have your baseline with whatever your pitches are, a fastball, curveball, slider, change, split, whatever you are, and then you can work off that baseline, grips, angles, and all the different stuff to really perfect and make you a better pitcher. Do we have, do we have Kylie? Kylie, welcome back to Ace Cast Live. How are you? Doing great. How you doing? We're doing good. When they put you on the track, man, and you're throwing in the bullpen, how are you? How's your data these days? Uh, not good. I got to pitch a couple times early in my high school career. I think when I didn't crack eighty, they told me to stop. <laughs> they said enough's enough. You got to you got to cover the draft because you're not going to be in the draft. I went back to my high school because last year we had uh, in Tampa Prep we had the first. Um, first drafted player in the history of the school, which is like 50 years. And it was funny because like, the, you know, the kid Jose Pena got drafted by the Phillies and he was like, oh, so you're one of the best players here? He was like, no, I was a terrible player here. You're you're the reason that any scouts know what my high school looks like. <laughs> well, at this time of the year, now it's changed, right? We used to be in June. Now we're in July. We're now around the All-Star game, the Futures game, the Home Run Derby. We got a lot going on in baseball how do you feel about the draft being more highlighted than ever before? Uh, more highlighted like that. Um, I'm, I'm in favor of that. I think the reason it is being held at this time of year is it sounds like the owners have basically decided we like having it at the all-star game, all the, you know, that stuff, the futures game, the celebrity stuff, home run derby, like having all that stuff together. It's convenient for us. We think it's helpful and everything sort of drafts off of each other. The front offices hate it because they have the trade deadline the week after and this year, uniquely, they have the international draft thing to worry about in between the draft and the week later when you have the trade deadline. Uh, and for me, I've been scouting 2023 draft prospects for three weeks now. Uh, so it's a little annoying having to balance both of these. So, like, I don't necessarily love it. I think maybe doing it at Omaha around the College World Series might be, like, a little more of an ideal time for it to be sort of all amateur baseball uh, focused at one at one time and then kind of all crescendoing all at once without having to tie it into other stuff. But you know, there's a couple decent good answers, and you know, I guess I like going on TV and telling people what's what. So I'll take it. Well, I, you think about what you said, the international draft, and we've talked to David Forrest, our general manager, about it. He's in favor of it, but like he's like all of us, you know, there everybody's kind of in the dark of how this thing's going to go. It really is you know, New York Major League Baseball negotiating with the Players Union. Uh, we had Jonathan Mayo on earlier today from MLB.com also, and, and he was talking about, wow, man, this thing is, uh, this thing is just, it, ha, ha, is it one big draft? Is it just an international draft? I mean, how do you, you know, how do you start, you know, trying to get a kid from the Dominican is far different from a player in Japan. Just when, when you hear international draft, what are you thinking? What's the best way to go about this? Huge topic. Uh, we've had uh, multiple Zooms uh, with all the ESPN staff with, you know, Alton Gonzalez has done some writing, Jeff Pass has done some writing on it, uh, all of our editors, myself. I've done some behind-the-scenes stuff. I've been, like, loading up for a big feature about it once this sort of gets resolved one way or another. Um, the, like, short version of this is I think it worked okay when I started doing this, like, 10, 12 years ago, 
where it was everyone commonly called it the wild west and it kind of was and everybody every team could spend whatever they wanted and nobody had early deals because the prices tend to go up over time for the good players and so nobody had a deal more than a couple months in advance and like it wasn't great and there were some teams that didn't try at all um but it was fine uh and then mlb wanted to put uh cost controls in place because there were some of these players from cuba and japan that were getting you know tens of millions of dollars that were older and they didn't like that so they want to put a cap on how much could be spent and sort of exert a little more control over the process uh and then what happened is teams were like well if you're going to cap how much money we can spend then we'll exercise how good we are by signing players earlier and earlier so instead of three months early we'll do it six months early and then eventually got to 12 and 13 years old and then the problem became that like steroids became an issue because if you can get a verbal deal at 13 you're incentivized to be on steroids and then get off them by the time you sign and you won't test positive and so they then had to have steroid testing on 13 year olds which you're like okay regardless of how we got here this is not the place we need to be and that's where we are right now we're now both sides are in favor of a draft of some sort uh and they're kind of quibbling over the money because fixing that current issue uh, we can't go back to where we were because the league won't give away the sort of cost controls of knowing that it can never go above this number. And the teams are just like, well, this is obviously not a doable process. So like, let's fix it so that, you know, everyone scouts everybody for, you know, 12 months before we can trade picks. You pick the player. It's not exactly the same as a draft. They don't necessarily have the college commitments. And, you know, some of the market forces are a little different. We need to sort of account for that, which is why the union wants to be more money involved. I'd like to think they're going to come to a conclusion, but Everything I'm hearing is like they're really far apart, and I don't think they're going to be able to bridge that gap, which means they'll just get kicked, kicked the can down the road to the next CBA. So taking a 30-minute conversation and condensing it into like four or five minutes, that's, that's my take. Well, the one thing I, I, you know, I wonder how you're going to deal with the Japanese players. How are you going to – you still have the problem with some of these kids – they're indebted to multiple people that you hear about, which is very sad. There's hangers on at a different level, not what we see like in the NBA and the NFL, but you know, you draft this kid and and he owes this person, this person, this person. I mean, it's really sad how they hang on to these young kids because everybody's trying to get out of the situation they're in and they're seeing this young child could be their way out. I, I just don't know how the, how these drafts and I'm not expecting you to have all the answers, but it's just really complicated and messy. And it's like, I think once people really understand how it has been going on, that it's kind of an ugly situation that uh, doesn't make baseball look really good. And I would say over half the people, because I've talked to a lot of them that are like involved in the negotiation, like the people that are actually throwing proposals back and forth have never been down there to a baseball thing. Uh, one of the teams I worked for, the team president asked me about it because I had a history of doing that. And he was like, oh, what do you think? And I like said what I thought. And he said what he thought. And I was like, oh, when's the last time you went down there? He's like, I've never been. And I'm like, you're one of the 30 guys like in the room deciding what the policy is. You've literally never been before. But you have meetings about we want to spend $7 million on this academy and $4 million on this player. And, you know, it's just sort of second nature in, in, in one way. But in going down there and um, interacting with it, it's very different. And I would also say um, to, to counter some of the stuff you said before, like there are agents in uh, domestic situations where they'll come in, represent a high school kid in the draft, and like they essentially just like make phone calls for six months and like give advice and get 5% of their bonus. And in Latin America, there are examples of very good Buscones and agents and trainers where they like house, feed, and like turn these, these, these kids into men for four years and they get 35%. And I'm like, it feels like they're doing way more than seven times the work than the agents domestically are doing who are just making some phone calls and can represent 14 kids at the same time. Um, those guys are, you know, essentially the the tutor, the baseball coach, the, you know, the you know sort of you know, leader of young men, like the ones that do it the right way 
I think they're kind of getting, you know, what they, what they're being paid for. It's just the bad examples of taking advantage of everybody, which is also very hard to legislate. Like that's endemic to the situation with the good ones come the bad ones. And yeah, the bad ones like really makes you cringe. You're just like, man, there's gotta be a better way to do this. Well, and if you do well in international signings, look no further than the Houston Astros. I mean, you can, whatever your draft is, but if you can dominate in the internet, if you can do well in the draft and the, the international signings, I mean, the lifeblood for your organization to your big league level. I mean, you can talk about that. I mean, it's just, it's unreal, especially like what we've seen Houston be, be able to do. And they historically don't spend, you know, the giant two, three, $4 million up front. Like they basically they're it's, it's similar to what I sort of, talked about when I worked for a team and they had me do this big long study where I went through every signing in the history of international baseball and they said all right what are your recommendations based on this data and what I recommended is almost exactly what they do so I'm imagining they did the same study I did which is uh if you really think a pitcher is like one of the best ones you've ever seen then you know pay him a million million half whatever you want to do uh but just sign a bunch of ten thousand dollar pitchers and like hold them all for two or three years see if you can get them to throw harder if you can't then unfortunately it's you know time to get another one uh, and they've turned a number of like ten to fifty thousand dollars pitchers into like good big leaguers, like even more than any other team's been able to do. So obviously their their development process works really well with those guys. And they also, if you go back to the very very beginning of this, like what was the first big uh, like signing class? It was like late eighties, early nineties. The Astros had the first one. They had Richard Hidalgo, Bobby Abreu, and like two or three other big leaguers in their very first class. They signed down there uh, when it was more than just you know a player here and there. When it was like sign eight or ten guys. They were the first team like getting the most out of Dominican Republic and like a little bit later out of Venezuela. So, yeah, they've been sort of ahead of the curve for a couple decades now. All right. So we got to go back to that. If I, if I brought you in, I gave you a call and I said, hey, I need recommendations. Let's just say it's the Oakland A's. What do you recommend we do in Venezuela, in the Dominican Republic? Like, like what is what is the key strategies down there for finding big leaders? Uh, I think it kind of depends what you're trying to get out of it and what you think your personnel, you know, scouts, uh, executives, uh, data people, what they're good at uh, and kind of lean into that. Because there are some teams like the Yankees, the Rays, the Dodgers that are generally seen as the most successful teams down there. And what they'll do is they'll go see the, you know, in the current situation, which, you know, may change, uh, but they'll go see the best 13, 14, 15 year olds, try to identify who is the very tippy top of the market. uh, And they feel confident that part of the market and they'll basically every year when there's the five highest bonuses uh, or the five best players at any given point, they'll be like half the teams or those three um, that are very good at that part of the market. And sometimes they think the third best player in the class, they can get for the 28th biggest bonus. And I'm like, oh, okay, we'll definitely sign him because we have like a divergent opinion on that player. And then whatever money we have left, we'll go sign some lesser players. And like all of those teams have like multiple big leaguers from like the $50,000 to $100,000 sort of leftover range. Uh, there are other teams like, you know, I mentioned Houston, where they're just not interested. They'll they'll take the older Cuban guys where they can feel better about that, um, about that level of data, taking like a Pedro Leon, who's in triple A right now, and be like, okay, we know that guy's going straight to double A. We know what that guy is. Uh, the White Sox uh, do this a lot. The Blue Jays have done historically, uh, where it's like basically any good Cuban player 18 and up, they're going to be near the top of the, of the market on them in terms of what they want to pay for them because they kind of want guys that they can feel better about, how close they are to the big leagues, and get them there quickly, maybe have immediate trade value. Whereas the 16 year old players have, you know, run a 40% strikeout rate in rookie ball. Can't really trade that guy. Um, and then there's other teams that like to sign 16 year olds, but like don't go over 500 K. And there's some teams like uh, St. Louis, Colorado that have done that and done it pretty successfully. Philadelphia, when they go seven figures, it doesn't necessarily go that well. When they go three to 500 K, they've got like multiple all-stars doing that. Um, so I think you have to 
profile your own staff or the staff you can get, figure out what they're best at, and then lean into it. Uh, and there's like, you know, I just described like five different ways to do it. Those all, if you can execute at a high level, uh, those are all viable ways to do it. It's yeah. not like, you know, the NFL where it's like, well, if you don't have a great quarterback, it's almost impossible to win. It's like, no, you can win in that market in a lot of ways. Yeah, kind of what you're saying is you don't have to break the bank on a guy to win. Sounds like you cast a bigger net and get more fish and you got a better chance. Well, and you're taking on so much risk there. You need to have some certainty in your people and your process and the kid and all that kind of stuff to feel like you're going to get a good result. And some teams like just go, you know, like Kool-Aid man flying through the wall, like, hey, we're going straight to the top of the market. We need to like plant a flag. And it's like, you're trying to plant a flag. That means you haven't spent $5 million before. You don't have the process. You don't know if you're going to be good at that. You're probably going to waste about $10 million finding out how to be good at that. And we've seen a lot of teams do that. Like the the teams that get good returns at the top of the market have usually done it before and have people that have done it before and they know the process. And uh, because there's like so much more unknown about these players, I mean, we go see high school players and sophomores. They've already committed to SEC schools. Like they've already been sorted through a couple of times. So it's like harder to be wrong. And and down there, like it's the purest form of scouting. You just walk out on the field. Somebody says, hi, this is my name. This is my age. And you get to watch me play usually in a workout, not in a game. And it is the hardest thing you can do. Like, it's, it's amazing to me that there are guys that over a 10 year period can like see kids twice, give them $3 million and be right more than other people. Like it, it seems impossible, but there are teams that are good at that. Washington would be another example where they've had some high profile misses, but like when you hit on like Soto and uh, Victor Robles, and I'm sure you can think of some of the other guys, Luis Garcia has gotten to the big leagues. Like their, their hits are some of the craziest hits you've ever seen. When you look at this draft, you know, we'll say it's it's a high school heavy draft. It's a heavy draft for college players. Where do you see this draft? Uh, it is the worst college pitching draft in a long time, maybe a decade. And it's not because the talent's not there. The two guys that I think would have been those uh, college pick high school or sorry, the college pitcher picks between like picks five and 15 I think it was going to be Connor Prelip, lefty out of Alabama. He missed his entire season recovering from Tommy John surgery. And then Carson Wisenhunt, a lefty out of East Carolina, uh, who missed the season with a PED suspension. Um, I think those were the two guys that were going to emerge and then obviously did not. Some of the other guys that might have emerged was Peyton Paulette out of Arkansas, missed the whole season with Tommy John, Reggie Crawford, lefty up to 100 with a plus breaking ball out of UConn, missed the season with Tommy John, Landon Sims, Mississippi State, tried to transfer from looking like Craig Kimbrell to being a starter this year. He blew out. He had Tommy John. I think you're sensing a theme here. Um, so it's like yeah. on draft day, where they're going to be drafted, all, you know, expectations are pretty low, really bad group. Um, but I think the talent's there. It's just some of these guys are going to essentially not be slowed down by Tommy John, but they're all going to get moved down 10, 20, 30 picks from where they were before they were injured. So that's something to look for is I think there's going to, if there's, if you're looking for what demographic is going to go lower, has the chance to surprise some people. Hunter Barco, a lefty out of Florida, was going to go late first round. That looks like he'll go late second round because he blew out. Um, that list seems to be never ending. Cole Phillips, the high school kid, blew out this spring. Looked like he was going to go late first. Now he looks like he might end up going to Arkansas. Um, I think that's where you're going to see the like surprises um, is, is from that pitching group of everyone trying to sort through all of the overslot high school pitchers. It's a very deep group. And then all of the injured pitchers, which is, I think, bordering on a dozen players right now. God, Tommy John used to be such a disaster. And oh, Tommy John, this is horrible. And now we just we throw it out like oh, he's had one Tommy John. Oh, I was in high school. It's in college. It's like it's like no big deal. Is that is that does that scare you? How do you feel about that? 
Well, yeah, and the conversation with Connor Prelip was, oh, we were ready to take him in the top five or ten picks, and now we can get him 15th overall. We're getting a discount. And, like, we think a lot of teams look at that discount in 10, 12 picks, like whatever it is, two and a half, three million dollars. They're like, well, that discount is higher than we think it should be. So we see an opportunity for value here because we normally pick in the back half of the first round, and now we get a top ten talent. And if he would have pitched 15 games this year, he would not be available. So we're, like, taking advantage of the situation. I think teams, I mean, the data says that, like, getting your velocity back is something like 80, 85% and getting your velocity and command back is a little more rare and coming back just as good as you were all the way across the board and maybe a little bit better is maybe a coin flip. Um, but like, we haven't seen a lot of, I mean, since going back to like Brady Aiken, like guys that get Tommy John generally come back like close to what they were that like 85, 90% of getting the arm speed back is generally true. I didn't even mention, by the way, Kamar Rocker, who obviously didn't sign last year because of medical concerns that haven't quite been fleshed out, but then he had his shoulder surgery and is now back to stuff and command looking the same as last year when he was a top 10 prospect. And now the question is, where does he go? I would imagine somewhere in the top 30 picks. So he's another guy that his value is now a little bit lower because of what's happened in the last year in an injury. But obviously some people think he is a premium, premium talent. And this is a chance to buy low on him when he was promised $6 million last year. And his price this year may be half that. And he's pitching roughly the same. So there's a way to look at that and say there's a tremendous uh, position for value. You know, it's tough to project anything at, you know, you start getting into the late teens and into the 20s because who knows who goes in front of them. A's are 19th. When you look at the A's, what are you thinking about for their draft? So they've been tied a lot to college players. Uh, you mentioned David Force. I actually was standing next to him at a game and figured out who he was there to watch, and he kind of rolled his eyes at me like, hey, could you do me a favor and not like put me on blast right now on the guy that I'm here to see? <laughs> Because I've, I've seen him, like, I, I remember I saw him in a game with Michael Chavis in high school, and they ended up not drafting Michael Chavis. But, like, him watching the players, I mean, they're taking him. Like, I'm sure he has a list of eight or ten guys to see, and, that you know, they're taking one of them, and he was at one of those games. Um, but there's another college player at the SEC tournament. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of players that I think have been sort of tied in that range. They all tend to be college guys, tend to be not lower upside, but, like, not necessarily be the guy with a bunch of 70 and 80 tools, more of the, like, very good baseball player type. So, like, Drew Gilbert at Tennessee – uh, J- uh, Justin Campbell, righty out of Oklahoma State, um, Gabriel Hughes, righty out of Gonzaga. All those guys have a bunch of above average to plus tools. So they're, they're perfectly good players uh, and capable of being above average everyday types. Uh, Cooper Jerpy, uh, low slot lefty. If you squint, kind of looks like Chris Sale. Obviously, you have to squint um, at Oregon State. I think he's also in that mix. Connor Freelip, the lefty I mentioned out of Alabama. Uh, and then the other college pitcher in that range, Kate Horton out of Oklahoma, he was seen as like a late second to third rounder entering the postseason. And then went on one of them like craziest tears we've ever seen. And now it looks like he'll has a real chance to go in the first round. And if he doesn't, it'll be because he turns down huge money to then hopefully be the first pitcher off the board next year, um, which is like his leverage because he, he was coming off of Tommy John surgery, young for the class, was good over, you know, five, six starts late in the season. I think he thinks with a full season, he goes in the top 10 picks. So there's another situation after a Tommy John, he's already pitched after it, but another chance for teams to take him maybe in the middle of first round and think they're getting a great value. Cause if he would have pitched another month, I think he'd be going higher than where he's looking right now, which again, is that like middle of the first round. Man, Ace fans would love to hear about a bopper. Just give me a guy that's going to come up. He's going to come up fast and he's going to be a legit offensive player. If you could be that genie and bring that guy, they would love that. The players I like most that I think will come the fastest do not have huge power. So I don't think that perfectly fits what you're saying, but if, if no. what you want is power, <laughs> it sounds like you do. Uh, the two guys for you, I feel like I'm doing Stefan from SNL. If you, if you like clubs, you'll love uh, yeah. right fielder out of uh, Vanderbilt, uh, Spencer Jones, six foot seven, 
turned down $2 million out of high school as both a pitcher and hitter. Uh, didn't play a whole lot due to injuries first years at Vanderbilt. This year posted uh, double-plus exit velos, hit double-digit homers, uh, is sort of jaw-dropping level athlete, like has 30-plus home run power, is also an average runner. The easy comp, even though he's lefty and Aaron Judge is righty, is Aaron Judge. Their numbers are shockingly similar, and Jones did it in the SEC, Judge did it in the Mountain West at Fresno State. Um, and the Yankees took a 25 and have been tied to Jones. So there's some, some chatter that they may be trying to do the same thing, but he might not get to 25. I haven't ranked 20th. Obviously the A's are right there at 19. If you want power, uh, either, either Spencer Jones or Tennessee, uh, right fielder, Jordan Beck. Also, uh, some people throwing out names like Jason Worth, Hunter Renfro, that kind of guy, a little bit of swing and miss concern, but tremendous athlete, huge power, maybe 30, 35 home run kind of power performing the sec but a little bit of swing and miss concern so that's why he may be available at 19 uh both of those guys could go ahead of oakland but at least one of them will get there and there's a chance both of them are there do you expect for the trading deadline any any explosions any big names any like wow i can't believe that happened moments uh well i i think luis castillo with the reds is the sort of big name the guy that everyone's waiting to see every team in, in the race wants to be able to add an ace. Um, I think he's sort of the big, the big wild card here. Do they decide to move him now? Are they able to meet his price? And I think otherwise, like the sort of expectation going into this deadline is it won't have the crazy fireworks that you want to see. Obviously every year that we say that there ends up being a number of deals and deals we didn't see coming. And, you know, the, remember the Zach Grinky deal when he got traded to uh, Houston was like after the horn, no one thought it would happen. And it turns out it came together in like 12 hours. Uh, there's always a couple of those floating around, but I would say, yeah, this is not quite the uh, the this past off season's uh, winter free agent market where it was just nine figure deals and shortstops and star liver players galore, where every team could you know get one of those guys. It's not quite that level of expectation, uh, but I, it sounds like there is enough to keep us interested, and there'll be plenty of moves uh, for contenders with Luis Castillo again being the headliner there. Yeah, as of yesterday, you had 20 teams out of the 30 who are either leading their division leading a wild card or three games or less from a playoff berth. So, I mean, 20 out of the 30 teams are in this thing right now. Hopefully it's going to be exciting. Yeah, no, I, I think the additional wild cards, well, the, the Bob Costas of the world may not love that uh, we're taking away some of the romanticism of you have to like win your division to make the playoffs or else you go home. I kind of like the idea of more teams being more competitive and, you know, being in the mix yeah. until later in the season. Uh, even if some of the teams running away with their division may not have quite as much to play for, they're still trying to win a World Series too. Like they're still trying to add players here and there. I like the idea of more teams uh, being involved late in the season, more fan bases having more reasons to go to the park. Yeah, Bob Costas has a press pass and he goes to games for free. I'm trying to do this for the people who actually pay to go to games and drive interest, and that's what we need. And and I say this. Uh, Kylie all the time. I've never seen a sport. I don't care if it's football. I don't care if it's the NCAA tournament. I don't care if it's hockey, the NBA. I've never seen adding postseason bursts ever hurt a league and ever hurt a league financially. I've never seen that ever before in American professional sports. Yeah, the only negative is what we're talking about is the conversation of is this changing the sport too much? But the idea of over like multiple decades, did the sport change too much? That's never the problem. And look at the NBA has been quick to change. And it's, you know, right there with uh, football as the number one sport. Baseball has been slow to change and has gone from top sport to probably third sport in terms of interest. It's not exactly the reason it's happened. It's not 100 percent of the explanation, but I think they're connected in a way that you can't kind of uh, disintertwine them. 
Great stuff. We always appreciate it. Enjoy the draft, and we'll talk to you soon. Yep, and hopefully people ignore that I made up a word there at the end. <laughs> <laughs> You're good, my friend. Take care. <laughs> yep, have a good one. Kylie McDaniel from ESPN does a great job. And you know what's so weird is that uh, normally we're all stressed about time because I got to get over and do A's, A's Total Access brought to you by Chevron. But I'm not, so I've, I've lost track of time. Is there a humming going on? Uh, not that I hear, no. Okay, good. Then it's just on my end. Wait, uh, it's a road game. Yeah, I'm, we, in a, I'm in a foreign studio here. Yeah, we got about four minutes till we have to close. Kylie's good. This international draft thing seems very complicated. Yeah, I agree. And I <clears throat> I want to see what – because we have what? What's today's date? We have about 13 days for them to figure it out on what they want to do. I had – you know, go, go, I, I didn't think we would go this hard into it because I don't, I don't know mo- much about it. You don't know much about it. We don't know, right? There's a lot of unknown, and we've got the – We've got the negotiations going on between the players and the owners right now. But after talking to Kylie and after talking to Jonathan Mayo, wow, this is a really now you kind of understand this show today makes you understand why it was such a sticking point in the latest CBA negotiations and why they had to say, listen, this is going to take a lot of time. Let's do this later on in the summer and get this CBA done now. It now, this show has made it made sense for me. I agree. It's the same thing for me. And I hope they get it done. And, and I wish it's, I hope it's two different drafts too, where it's not, you know, you don't intertwine, you don't mix them together because that's just not fair um, to a lot of the, to all the international kids because, you know, like in Dominican and Venezuela, they're not playing as many games as kids in college are playing here. Or, Playing in the SEC or Pac-12 or ACC, where these schools are, were powerhouses, and they're playing against elite competition. That's not what's going on. Yeah, yeah you can say that, but Robert Poisson got five point one million, and he had never done a thing. You think that's good for the A's? No. He, I guess, How about all these kids who have signed for signed for money they should have never been signed for, and have never they were just workout kids, and they got millions of dollars. I mean, let's be honest here. I, 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 you know, not comparing them to guys in the United States. The guys in the United States have actually played. They've played the game. That's what I mean, you're yeah. Seeing the, you're seeing them play. These kids have been getting a ton of money, and they don't play. They don't even know how to play the game. Yeah. and That's just, what are we doing here? Uh, if, if, you want, if you want a thing of uh, a good news, um, besides Jared Koenig being back for the A's, as uh, Adrian Martinez was opted back down the AAA, I don't know if you saw the minor league report today, but Robert Poisson last night playing for the uh, the rookie in the rookie league, um, two for two last night or yesterday in the game. So I don't know. Maybe he'll get some development down in Arizona, and you can call him back up to Stockton, and he can start hitting a little better because he was not well, performing. Kylie is a great example of someone who worked for an organization and can tell you how many teams just threw money at it not totally knowing what they were doing, just threw money at it. Give that guy $2 million, Give that guy $3 million, Give that, and they're just kids, and they mounted to, unfortunately, it doesn't make them bad people, but they amounted to nothing in baseball. And here he's saying, look at the teams that have done the best. The Astros have gone down there and said, I'll sign you for 50. I'll sign you for 75. Not going 
crazy in money, sign a bunch of guys, see if it works, doesn't. All right, get the next crop in here and the next crop. And that is work versus I'm going to pay one guy $5.1 million. And unfortunately for Robert Poisson, he's the poster boy of couldn't even make it in A-ball. You had to send him back down to Arizona rookie. And how old is he? Uh, I don't think he's 20 yet, but he will be. He's been now playing minor league. He's been playing some form of professional baseball now for years. He, when when do we get him? 2019? So, yeah, this would have been his – well, there was nothing in 2020. This is his second year, I believe. I don't know how much he played in 2019, but – Well, he was signed at 16. Yeah, he played – but he played in Stockton last year, and then he started in Stockton this year, and he was sent back and down couldn't there. couldn't hack it in Stockton this year. Yeah, no, it wasn't good. That's so. a problem. I mean, there's so – I mean, there's a – the way this international thing, it just, it sounds, it does sound very wild, wild west. And it sounds like they need to do something that changes the business model of, sounds like there's a lot of people have made money that maybe shouldn't have made money, not necessarily the players, but there's got to be a better way to protect the teams, the team's interest, protect the kids and figure out a way to put these guys not in a bidding war and put them in an actual draft. It just seems drafts work, right? Yes. And that's something that we've seen. We've seen they work in all these other sports, you know, unless you're an individual sport where there's not going to be a draft in tennis or golf or stuff like that. I mean, there's going to be drafts seem to work in team sports. It gives, it gives the amateur side some structure. It gets the team structure and we still even haven't addressed what you're going to do with the Japanese teams or the Japanese players. And like it's I said, a mess. And one, and one of the one of the big ones is going to be Sasaki from over there, who's been a great. He's been a great pitcher over in Japan. So, well, those guys, you know, now that I think about it, what we're talking about, those guys aren't amateurs. No, they're they're professionals. You're basically you're buying someone's professionals, so they they kind of don't count. This would mo- this would go towards if you wanted to start drafting Japanese high school kids or whatever Japanese, I don't really know their minor league system, but if you yeah. wanted to start, you know, taking kids that are amateurs. Yeah. It's it, a murky, it's a murky, murky deal. And obviously they've been working on this. Both sides want to happen, but it's not easy. Yeah. That's why it was a big, ta- a big sticking point in the CBA, as you mentioned, and they got 13 days to figure it out. So we got about three minutes left. So, all right, what do you got? Oh well, that's it for today. We're gonna have uh, Feldy tomorrow. Top ten first half performances. Oh, you're saying show's done, done? Yeah, because you know we get kicked off because you know Ace, you know Ace Total Access is brought to you by Chevron with Roxy Bernstein will be coming up in a few moments. The great Roxy Bernstein. Yeah, maybe I'll wait till tomorrow to announce the who's hosting pregame on Saturday. Oh, tease it. That's it. We call that a tease. I learned from you. (laughs) Yeah. A good host always brings it back to himself. I'm learning. Yes, yes, (laughs) yes. This is day one of two days. We will be back here tomorrow. NBC Sports California in the studios. Maybe tomorrow I'll, I'll sit in the crook and kipe seats. Just so an A's butt was in their seats. How about that? And if you can get the Kipe microphone, the little, the really little one that he wears during the broadcast, that that would be. I I would move my computer to show you what the room looks like, but I'm worried about we we know when we move stuff. Yeah, you'll be, we'll be off the air. Well, I'll be on the air. Stuff happens. You'll be gone, but I'll still be here. 
I mean, seriously, they have actual San Francisco giant chairs and one specific for Mike Kruko. But they've got all kinds of bobbleheads, too. So this is the studio that you watched during COVID when they did the play-by-play. You know, Glenn and Ray and Dallas, when they did the play-by-play, this was the room they did it in. Well, I'm glad we were able to get it done today. I love the background, though. The background is sick. Yeah, I agree. I'm looking forward to it. I like how it, like – I like how you got the, because uh, in here, the clouds are blurry, but the way the screen comes on, I don't know how that optical illusion works. You can actually see the sunset, but here, when you're looking out with the naked eye, it just looks blurry, but I look on there and you can actually see a sunset. Yeah, you can. I looked at, uh, I looked at the stream while I was on YouTube and, and Twitter and it looked good while we were doing the show, so um Mission. I turn the lights as bright as I can get them. Yeah, you look good now. So, you know, we'll, we got to figure it out for tomorrow. But we we got to go. We're 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 gonna get kicked off for of Roxy. I got nothing to do until four thirty. Oh, well, go talk to go talk to Bip. All right, I'll go talk to the Bibster. Roxy Bernstein up next on A's Total Access. Enjoy this one between the Athletics and the Texas Rangers. Game two of the three game set from the ballpark. It's 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 what again? It's from field. It's not park. It's Globe Life Field. It's, but it, well, across the street wasn't Globe Life Park. It was, but it's now uh, I think it's Choctaw Stadium or something like that. Ah. It's the name of a casino. The casino. It's owned by a casino. So, A's Rangers next. Enjoy right here on A's Cast. The Coliseum has gone by many names, but none better than The Last Dive Bar. Hi, everyone. Ken Korak here, and my friends at Last Dive Bar are helping us celebrate our longtime home. Last Dive Bar has the most unique merchandise for all Oakland baseball fans. T-shirts, sweatshirts, the Ray Fossey line, and my personal favorite, the lights have taken full effect. Visit their website at lastdivebar.com or follow them on social media at Last Dive Bar. All proceeds are invested back into the A's Community Fund and their affiliated charities. Go to lastdivebar.com. That's Last Dive Bar. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.